Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Hempson's series at Inquest podcast with Liz Stokes and Elspeth Rose, who are both members of Hempson's healthcare advisory team. Liz and Elspeth cover Inquest across the north of England and have experience in various coroner's courts. These podcasts take listeners through the journey of an inquest, giving helpful background and advice. As always, please do get in touch if you have any comments at all, or, or indeed if you have questions for Liz or Elspeth, or if you have any suggestions for particular areas you'd like us to cover. Just drop me an email at j.baker at hempsons.co.uk. So, welcome to the fourth in our in our in our sort of podcasts um, in this series. I can't believe we've already got to number four. Um, we're actually going to look at two topics in this particular in this particular sort of episode, um, and I'm sure you'll explain this sort of further yourselves. But they they are they are sort of linked, and it, it tends to be that they that the issues sort of can occur together. And the first topic is um, really looking at Article Two and what Article Two is. And then we're also going to have a discussion about um, when a jury inquest would occur. So if I can perhaps move, first of all, if Liz can just answer and, and let the audience know and the listeners know, what exactly is Article 2, Liz? Well, that's, that's a huge question to start with. Um, so Article 2 is, is a, it's a term that you hear bandied around with inquest law and in coroner's inquest quite a lot. And the Article 2 actually refers to Article 2 of the European Convention of Human Rights. And that is the article which provides that everyone's right to life is going to should shall be protected by law. So the right to life places two substantive duties on those member states who, who are signed up to the convention. And the first of that those duties is a negative obligation to refrain or not to take life. So basically not not kill anyone and that's a fairly straightforward duty and the second duty is a positive obligation to take appropriate measures in order to safeguard life within that positive obligation this includes two further duties there is a general duty to ensure that there are effective regulatory frameworks in place for the protection of lives um, and that relates to things like having in terms of say um state organisations having uh, competent staff procedures in place and having standards and procedures and systems of working in place to protect um, lives. So Article 2 would only be engaged in those circumstances if, if there is some evidence that these systems are not in place. And that's when you hear talk of things like systemic issues engaging Article 2. The second duty is an operational duty or operational obligation for uh, uh, an organisation or state agency to take reasonable steps to protect the lives of individuals where state authorities know or ought to have known that there is a real and immediate risk to that person's life uh, and that can be either by, by suicide or violence at the hands of others and this, this as I say is known as the operational duty so these two duties so an article 2 inquest will arise automatically for some deaths um, such as those that take place, um, deaths that took place in state custody and other Article 2 inquests will take place where sometimes it's arguable and there's evidence to, to suggest that the substantive duties, so either the general duty or the operational duty, have been breached in relation to the death. This then where there is a breach of Article 2 or at least a suggested breach of Article 2 will require the state to carry out an, uh, an effective independent public investigation 
under the duty of an enhanced investigation. And this is why, in some circumstances, you hear talk of Article 2 being engaged in the coroner's court. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about how this then applies to inquest proceedings, because that's that's a very sort of brief and succinct overview of Article 2 law. And Elspeth, feel free to drop in anything else that you no, think I mean, is important. No, I mean, you're absolutely right, and you did it incredibly well um, to try and simplify it as far as possible. But obviously, it's, it is really um, complex and a huge area of law. But I think the importance for people today would be to know how that actually changes an inquest so absolutely um, so what the difference is between an article exactly. two and a non-article two inquest. exactly so in turn there's two main issues i think you'll agree and again feel free to chip in <laughs> in terms of scope an article two issue tends to be concerned well is concerned with wider issues so an article two inquest will look at those issues beyond the um specific facts and chronology of the case and may then be widened to look at policies, procedures, um, systems in place within, say, a hospital or any other organisation where there may be um, wider concerns and, and, and the coroner will then look at those and investigate those as part of the inquest investigation. So that there is a significant impact on, on the inquest if it's an Article 2 inquest in terms of scope. The other significant change in, in terms of practical um, difference is around the, the type of conclusion. I think we're going to do a further podcast on conclusions a little later on, so I'm not going to go into that in huge detail. But it, if the article, if it's an Article Two inquest, it may give rise to an expanded form of narrative conclusion, which is available to, to coroners, which might include um, more critical language to be included in a narrative conclusion. So they're the two main practical differences. I think there has been a lot of suggestion that the, the reality of a, of a full, fair and fearless inquest, which is non-Article 2, in reality looks at those, some of the similar issues that would be included in Article 2 issues. So some coroners may suggest that actually the practical reality um, is fairly minimal. But um, there is always at the beginning of an, uh, an inquest investigation consideration as to whether Article 2 is engaged and um, there might be an opportunity to provide arguments by those legal representatives as to whether it is appropriate that Article 2 is engaged. And again, it goes back to various um, legal considerations as to whether mm. it's engaged. But the, the practical realities for, for those attending an inquest will be around scope and conclusion, I think. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I would say that um, essentially this is, you know, for the majority of the listeners, um, this is just for information and it's for their lawyers to then hash it out as to um, whether Article 2 is engaged or not. Um, but it can also have implications as in the, the family might um, seek for Article 2 engagement because then they are eligible to, for certain um, uh, financial assistance to be able to to get their own legal representation so it might be that there's that kind of consideration and perspective from families um but it's yeah it doesn't actually i think practically it doesn't really change um the the scope of the inquest and also the coroner can um say that article two is engaged at any point throughout the um coronial investigation so quite often i find they might say um, that 
the circumstances are not so that Article 2 is engaged at the beginning, but they often say, but I will, you know, it's in the forefront of my mind. So um, if the evidence then starts to suggest that Article 2 is and should be engaged, then that can be engaged any time. There isn't sort of a one chance um, for the coroner to decide that. Absolutely. I have had occasion where the, the Article 2 has been reconsidered again right at the very end after all mm. the evidence has been heard and before a conclusion is given. And, and, and the coroners may ask for submissions at, at that point. Um, I think the important thing to, to is just to have an awareness that, that there is a, a slight difference and it does have an impact. But in terms of um, witness attendance at an inquest, um, if it's an Article 2 inquest, I think the general issue is that it, it might well be wider. It might well require a much more in-depth look at greater systems rather than chronology. And uh, and it, it might give rise to additional witnesses because mm -hmm. of that who are have more you know, senior witnesses. More senior witnesses well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are some practical differences, but I think that's it's it's something that can be discussed, I think, early on with um, any legal representative or um, someone who's who's directing the, the the inquest involvement right at the start, just to clarify what the position is with Article 2 mm. and what effect that might have in terms of specific issues that might come up during the course of the evidence um, mm. and, and potential conclusions or, or or issues that can be included in those conclusions. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. Thank I think you. you're good. Yeah. yeah, sorry. Yeah, thanks. Beth. No. I was just actually sort of wondering that um, with Article 2, is there a particular sort of relevance to Article 2 when it comes to the pandemic and, and issues with COVID? Um, yes, so I mean, at the moment, this is just sort of uh, academic, I would say, um, academic arguments and discussion. But obviously, um, as, as everyone would, would know and be aware that there have been pressures on NHS resources, and um, that's probably an understatement. And I know from my experience with um, attending inquests that coroners are definitely alert to asking questions about resources and decision making. And so that can start to um, sort of encroach into more Article 2 territory because it's looking at um, the provision of certain resources, who gets what, essentially, if I put it very kind of crudely, you know, who who is getting which um, life saving treatment and what and the the basis upon decision making. So um, at the moment, I think it's just more academic and to be aware of. But this is another reason why, you know, lawyers are very sort of um, aware of these kind of issues and can kind of see where the coroner is is going with it or the thinking behind certain things that maybe the the pre-inquest review hearing which is where you'd have discussions about the scope of the inquest and therefore article two engagement so oh, i think you. we'll see more and more as as well, sadly as there's more and more um covid related deaths yes i'm sure no that's helpful just to sort of put that into context and and how article two could sort of raise and raise itself in, in those situations um, so moving on to the, the second topic within this particular podcast um, and looking at jury inquests, can I just ask you, Elspeth, in what circumstances would there be a jury inquest? I mean, it's something that I'm a little bit in the dark about. I must admit yeah. what the difference between the two is. That'd be really helpful. So if I start by explaining sort of the circumstances when there would be a jury and then we can touch upon 
why we've put this topic in the same um, sort of uh, basket as Article 2, because they are quite close. Um, so in terms of circumstances, if someone has died in custody, and so by that I mean, for instance, if they are in prison, um, or in what what's called state detention. So I'm I'm referring really to the the act that sets this out. Um, and state detention could mean if someone's uh, sectioned or detained under the um, Mental Health Act, and that death was violent or unnatural, or the cause of death was unknown. Then this will automatically trigger a jury inquest. So. Um, just to be clear, usually inquests and decisions are made by the coroner alone and led by the coroner. But obviously, if there's a jury inquest, if there's circumstances where um, there should be a jury inquest, then you have the coroner who's overseeing and directing. But then you have jury members who are listening to all the evidence. Um, another sort of circumstance where there'll be a, a jury inquest would be if it would be as the result of, um, for instance, um, a state officer, for instance, uh, a police officer or or someone um, employed by the state, as in, you know, employ, uh, an army officer, for instance, um, if there was a death as a result of that, then that would um, lead to a jury inquest. If there is um, another category would be if there was a death caused by an accident, poisoning or notifiable disease. So this kind of um, I find is more health and safety related um, deaths and matters. Um, and I suppose bringing back um, it into context with COVID, COVID-19 is in fact what is called a notifiable disease. Um, and so uh, people who may have experience with health and safety executive and health and safety law will will know the relevance of that because it changes your reporting requirements. But the Coronavirus Act, um, which was obviously um, implemented um, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, removes the requirement that COVID, a death by COVID automatically triggers a jury inquest. So that's a slight um, sort of caveat and anomaly in, in the process. And then the final category is just if the coroner deems it necessary and, and um, uh, justified, really. So that's almost a catch-all as to the discretion of the, the coroner as to the circumstances make it so that a jury inquest is, is needed. And so Again, these are factors that would be discussed in when I mentioned the pre-inquest review hearing or earlier on in the proceedings. So at the same time as you might discuss scope, whether Article 2 is engaged, what witnesses should attend, uh, the coroners will often also ask for either submissions or just make a direction as to whether it will be a jury inquest. And, and um, like Liz mentioned before, there's some scenarios where, as I set out, um, a jury inquest is automatic, so that's a, that they don't need submissions on that, it, it is or it isn't, um, and same for Article 2, but then there's the there's some um, circumstances where it doesn't fall into those categories that I mentioned, but um, for whatever reason there may be submissions or thinking that a jury inquest is required. So those are the circumstances and then practically um, you have between sort of seven and eleven jurors. Um, obviously 
in this COVID era, uh, it's been quite hard for courts to have jury inquests. There have been some sort of delay um, because of the social distancing measures, but they are now um, really um, able to manage that. So what I find is they tend to still have juries attending the court in person um, as uh, although technically they could um, attend virtually, but I think in the interest of, of justice, they prefer them to be in, in person and in the courtroom, um, but obviously socially distanced. Um, and in terms of practically, I find that jury inquests are, they'll just be, they tend to be a lot longer because the jurors have to understand the evidence, um, understand the documentation that's provided. And and then come to the the conclusion following a bit of uh, guidance and direction from the the coroner. So that in itself just means that there's there's uh, uh, more cooks in the kitchen. There's more more individuals, and so there are. It does take longer because jury members can ask questions as well. Um, so, it, Liz, what's your experience? Do you do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it the the presence of a jury in a in an inquest does mean that everything is slowed down a little bit um, in order to make sure that everything is working at a very practical level. Um, I think that would probably be my the key thing that comes out of it. Just in terms of witnesses being before, before a jury, um, I don't think it changes anything in terms of the witness evidence that they give it may it may re-emphasize slightly the need to to be able to explain the evidence in terms mm -hmm. that um uh, lay people understand in terms of especially if it's very uh, um highly technical or medical i think it's it emphasizes the importance of being able to explain um language clearer mm -hmm. and and be ensure that the, the jury can understand and can put together the evidence um better yeah. I think I think for that reason, and this kind of links to our previous podcast that we did on giving evidence, although quite rightly, as as um, Liz, I remember you you saying that you don't tend to reiterate questions, and uh, so that evidence is repeated, which is quite right. Um, in jury inquests, sometimes there may be more of a need to repeat a question just so that there really is clarity as to the answer. Um, and I think just as you say, not to if it, it doesn't really change anything, although I appreciate it might feel um, a bit more intense because there's there's more people in the courtroom. Um, but in terms of the evidence, it doesn't change it. But just make sure that there's no knowledge is no knowledge is assumed because everyone uh, which should be the approach really anyway in any event because family members are still going to be attending and won't, are not med don't tend to be medical professionals in in usually so um so it's, it's sort of an interesting one juries and and we did put it in the same podcast because although it's it's quite a uh, another big topic um quite often article 2 and jury inquest align so um if if there's someone who's died in in custody or um for instance they've been under section um so detained under the mental health act then then you are going to have article 2 involvement because obviously you have the state 
who state and by that I mean for instance the the, the prison that they're in or the um, mental health facility that they are um, within who are controlling really their their movements and their interactions and um, and are overseeing them the majority if not all of the day and therefore you can therefore you can see the link can't you then to to argue that you had a right to safeguard and so if someone's then passed away through for instance violent means like a suicide or other interaction with someone else then that gives rise to those questions about what the state's involvement and responsibility was in those those uh, sad situations. Yeah you mentioned earlier on about um, pre-increase reviews which was something we haven't really talked about very much but like as you said that both article 2 and and the question is whether there should be a jury or something that should be um considered at a pre-inquest review um and as as you mentioned Elspeth about having um possibly having submissions around both those and, and the details mm. of those will, will will differ depending on the facts of the certain case and mm. you know the location and the circumstances of of all those factors will be considered uh, hopefully at an earlier stage um, but then may be revisited if necessary by the coroner. Yeah thank you yeah thanks Elspeth and, and thanks Liz yeah I think you you did you did manage to clarify for me you know why they're linked yeah. you know and how they do end, end up sort of having um, the issues of the, of the circumstances of the case if you like can be um, linked to article 2 and then obviously linking through to to why you would have a jury inquest. Mm -hmm. Um, you also touched on um, conclusions uh, a couple of times within that particular, um, within the last sort of couple of podcasts actually that we've um, that we've done. So I think it's worth just letting our listeners know that conclusions is actually the the topic of number five in the series, which we'll be issuing in a couple of weeks, just to make you aware of that. Um, so thank you, Liz. Thank you, Elspeth, as I've already said. Thank but um, the other thing to absolutely stress is that, you know, if you do have any questions um, for Liz or Elspeth or you have any comments or you have any suggestions for topics, then as usual, do drop me an email at j.baker at hempsons.co.uk. And I, I certainly hope you'll be tuning in in a couple of weeks when we'll be looking at um, conclusions and having a further discussion. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.